Good afternoon. It's Friday the 24th of June 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, host Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and uh, also joining us by video link, we've got uh, Vanessa Bailey and Ian Davis. Um, so let's get straight on. Lots to cover. And we're starting off with food and uh, particularly food as a weapon of war. Uh, so uh, let's put that up on screen. We've got food as a weapon of war is uh, Liz Truss's uh, narrative. She was in Turkey. Uh, and uh, well, that's all about blocking the, uh, sorry, breaking the blockade, the so-called blockade on uh, Odessa and so on, uh, Patrick. And uh, well, we have a little bit of video now. Uh, we had two choices about which uh, video to play. Uh, we had the press conference itself, or we had the sheer propaganda piece that Liz Truss put out on her Twitter feed. So for the benefit of everybody, enjoy the propaganda. Here we go. Food should never be used as a weapon of war, but that's what we're seeing in Ukraine, with Putin's forces blocking the ports and stopping grain being exported around the world. I'm here in Ankara to help find a solution and to unblock this issue. Turkey is a vital strategic partner in our work to help get the grain out, in particular reopening essential sea routes to ensure the safe passage of food. The situation is urgent. We cannot let it drift. Britain will leave no stone unturned in trying to resolve this alongside allies and partners like Turkey. We're working closely together to help all of those suffering from Vladimir Putin's appalling war. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we were struggling to keep a straight face through that, Patrick. I give her props for trying to color coordinate with the Turkish flag colors, but uh, she nearly got there. Salmon, the Bill Gates salmon color. Yes. Not bad. Um, so, uh, look, What's the truth on this? Well, the truth is that uh, uh, Russia, actually a Turkish ship, uh, just left Mariupol uh, this week after the Russians demined the area around Mariupol. The Ukrainian military, uh, with the payment and backing of NATO, mined uh, the, the waterways around mm -hmm. Odessa and uh, the Azov and Black Sea. They've cleared that. That Turkish ship has been repaired and set on its way. So it's not Russia that's holding up uh, the grains. There's some practical safety and security concerns those need to be observed and the at the end of the day it's a it's a great talking point um, but there's not a lot of substance behind it coming from the nato countries yes uh, and uh, well as we mentioned uh, before uh, although the eu is claiming that it's going to start ramping up food production to try to deal with the so-called food shortages uh, the uk in the meantime is heading towards sustainable uh, food production and even more so because today they have announced that they have joined uh, the Sustainable Productivity Growth Coalition. Um, so this is more about rewilding and so on than anything else. Uh, and maybe we're going to be eating insects in the not too distant future. Uh, but this is not about uh, ramping up food production to make up for the fact that uh, there is less available through Ukraine and particularly Russia. So, uh, you know, we are... Uh, well, what do we say? We're, they are determined to keep this narrative going that Russia is the cause of the food shortages. And, and sanctions plays a huge role in uh, allowing food products, agricultural products, potash, fertilizer, not just grains, but other things as well. Sanctions plays a huge role in impeding uh, the free flow of these types of things, which has a ripple effect across agricultural uh, industry zones all over the world. Um, so it's a very disingenuous for them to keep hammering on this uh, banal talking point that uh, Putin has weaponized food. It's really incredible. Yes, and uh, we will be hearing a little bit in a second, I think, about whether Putin has also weaponized uh, inflation 
Uh, but uh, just to give a, a, a link to that, uh, this is the latest uh, retail sta uh, sales statistics from the Office for National Statistics. I'm particularly talking about food. Uh, and they're saying that households are reducing the amount of food that they're buying in supermarkets and, and uh, in other shops as well, of course. Uh, they're saying that uh, about 50% of uh, adults surveyed by the Office for National Statistics said they bought less food in the past fortnight because of the higher prices. Uh, and they're also saying that uh, uh, their monthly outgoings rising overall contributing to this. So let's just bring the graph on screen. Uh, and uh, so you're seeing that uh, food stores are seeing a minus 0.6% fall uh, in, uh, or a minus 6%, 0.6% change in uh, the uh, so-called growth of sales. Uh, so uh, contracting as a result is 0.5% uh, fall overall in, in household spending this month, uh, that's obviously going to increase as we uh, progress into this uh, economic disaster that we're witnessing. It is an economic disaster and uh, it's only just beginning. A lot of people saw a lot of signs in the last week that look somewhat promising in the short term, but in the long term, not so great. Let's look at this. So this is the energy shock. This is what everybody's feeling, everybody's experienced. There's no doubt by the way, we're reporting on this, what, about uh, nine months ago? Yes. Ten months ago, and we were raising the alarm at UK Column uh, back then that this was happening. Of course, that was long before uh, Vladimir Putin's so-called price hike that the West is uh, going with, that talking point. So this is a really interesting piece here. This is by Bjorn Lomborg. Uh, he is a Scandinavian uh, economist. He's definitely on the green side of things, but more on the realist green side of things. Fossil fuel price spikes are causing pain, but little climate payoff. So you've probably seen, and this, here he is right here, the author of False Alarm, Beyond Lomberg, great book. I, I agree with a lot of his points on this. He's one of the few sane people uh, on this, the political left, as it were, uh, that's making some of these really important points. Now, a lot of people have been boasting, Mike, and you've seen this as well, that uh, this, this, this crisis is driving us closer towards adopting green energy solutions. Have we heard this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. From quite a few politicians. Yes. Even Ursula van der Leyen said, we must thank Vladimir Putin for accelerating our move to green energy, okay? So they're, they're not shy about boasting about this. Here's what Lomberg has to say though, a little bit of uh, cold water here uh, on the green uh, fiestas. So for the last three decades, climate campaigners have fought to make fossil fuels so expensive that people would be forced to abandon them. That's sort of what we're seeing now, at least that's the talking point, right? Yes. Uh, so, and he goes on, their dream is becoming a reality. Energy prices are spiraling out of control. We'll soon get even worse, yet we are no closer to solving climate change. Now, mind you, Lomborg is a believer in anthropogenic global warming. He just says it's not as intense, it's not as much of a priority as the alarmists would like to believe. So he is in the climate camp, but on a much lower level, okay. I think, than a lot of the people that we'll see in politics and, and the media here. And he goes on, Germany is on track to spend more than half a trillion dollars on climate policies by 2025, yet has only managed to reduce fossil fuel dependency from 84% in 2000 to 77% today. Uh, not a great return on your investment, I would say. Mm. Half a trillion not a great return at all. Uh, and it goes on here, getting to zero carbon will cost Europe 5.3% of its GDP in low emission assets 
every year. For Germany, that's annually 200 uh, billion annually. Who can afford to do that? And on top of that, raising the cost of fuel, it's going to kill your industrial base and also kill your uh, amazing export economy, which countries like Germany have right. a, a traditionally an amazing export economy. They subsidized Southern Europe mm. in the EU setup. Okay, they, ba they bail everybody out. They basically subsidize the poorest states. So this is Germany. So if we're gonna give an award for the, really the dumbest government, um, the most emasculated uh, a government in the world, it has to be Germany. Nobody else can act against their own self-interests like the Germans have, especially in the last six months with all the sanctions and their energy flight. So here's Olaf Scholz here. There, this is Time Magazine calling this Germany's moment. And here's Olaf at the World Economic Forum. So he, he really is kind of positioned his country as a subsidiary of Davos uh, in terms of all their policies. So are we gonna call this now the German Democratic Republic? Because that seems to be exactly where they're headed. There's the hammer and compass flag there from the DDR. So this is what Germany's gone and done. They've gone to fire up the coal plants because they're saying Russia, Russia is throttling gas supplies. Now there's some problems technically with the gas flow to Germany. They've committed to degasify their relationship with Russia over the next 12 months. So this is compounded with some technical problems plus the ruble issue. And part of the reason for this, of course, is, is they've completely shut down their nuclear industry, so they can't possibly, they can't switch those back on again in five minutes. So the only option is to switch the coal plants back on. That's right, that's right. But guess who wins on the coal? The carbon markets are going wild because they need to buy offsets mm -hmm. for all of this coal that they're putting onto the grid. Uh, by the way, slight problem, where are they gonna buy their coal from? Well, that's a bit, a bit tricky. I mean, Poland's still producing coal, but Poland's mainly using that internally. So right. the only source is probably what, Russia? Russia, yeah, that's where, well, before this crisis, that's where Germany bought most of its coal. Mm. So where are they gonna find that coal? I don't know, China, are they gonna ship it over by boat? Has China got any to spare? Well, that's even that's even less green then. So so they're just they're shooting themselves in the foot so many ways here. Yeah, so the, the, the nuclear issue, that's huge. Now they're back on coal. Uh, wind didn't work out, you remember? Yes. Last winter didn't work out. So here's the here's the real reality of the situation. Asia is buying up discounted Russian oil uh, and uh, basically making up for any European lost sales for Russia. They're offering this at very generous discounts. Look at this, Asian countries are given uh, generous discounts up to 20% 20 20 per barrel or more based on contract volume and term length. And remember, Germany turned down long-term fixed-price contracts from Russia before the Ukraine crisis. They, uh, back in September, nobody was, was biting. In fact, further back into 2021, mm. uh, Russia said this, Putin said this publicly at the time, why aren't you buying our low-price fixed long-term uh, contracts for gas and oil? They weren't interested. So why weren't they interested back in 2021? Mm. There's reasons for that that might not actually 100% be because of the Ukrainian um, situation. But look at this, thanks to the U.S., EU and UK sanctions, Russia's enjoying one of its biggest years uh, in sales. And so, of course, Vladimir Putin is very happy about that. And so that brings us to NATO, Mike. NATO is saying, and I didn't realize they're a political organization. Oh yes, increasingly so. And, and in, in the language they're using, they are absolutely describing themselves as a political organization. Uh, and they're talking about having borders. 
So the, the NATO absolutely sees itself as being political in that sense. Here's their director general of the uh, International Bank of, of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, we must prepare for the fact that it could take years, says Stoltenberg. We must not let up supporting Ukraine. So he's saying, get used to the pain, get used to the sacrifice, uh, the food rationing, the fuel rationing, because we're going to spend years supporting Ukraine in this losing endeavor. This really has to go down the history as one of the biggest failures um, of modern times in the new West, as it were, uh, for the EU and NATO. I mean, is there anything you can compare this to? Uh, don't know. Uh, Ian, you had a thought. Uh, I'm <clears throat> just reading recently that Russia have just uh, just recently overtaken Saudi Arabia as China's largest uh, in, uh, export market. So it was Saudi Arabia, now it's Russia providing China with most of its oil. Um, and also, obviously, it's there's still no kind of um, way that, that there seems to be of pushing OPEC and Russia apart. They seem to be happy to collaborate at the moment. So it's all looking very good for Russia and for, and for China. Yes. That's a good point Ian's made about OPEC and OPEC plus because before there might have been rivalry between some of the core OPEC countries and those on the periphery, but now they all see common cause in the, the two futures for global energy. One is a basket of energy uh, sources, including gas and oil, and right. the other is the Klaus Schwab uh, reset future, which is no fossil fuels or hydrocarbons, um, yeah. as it were. So they're they're starting to see common cause and even looking beyond uh, short-term uh, price competition mm. issues, which they normally would have fought over mm. uh, tooth and nail. And now there seems to be a very different approach. This is very interesting. Yes. Um, and by the way, the U.S.'s uh, production is currently ramping up as well in terms of, of oil. So build back better. Uh, well, we'll see. Yeah. So, so in, this is interesting. So here's one of the countries that basically got out of the Russian uh, energy thing immediately, Bulgaria. Here's their pro-Western Canadian Harvard-educated Prime Minister, Kirill, uh, Kirill uh, Petkoff. He has been ousted in a vote of no confidence. This is the first vote of no confidence, uh, a successful vote of no confidence in the country's uh, history, the modern Bulgaria's history. Right. This is huge. He, very pro-NATO. And so he's been ousted. The coalition fell apart. So the president has, uh, you know, has to form a government uh, in the next few months. If not, it's going to go to dissolve parliament general election. So it'll, that, that'll be the third, uh, fourth general election since April 2021. Okay. Not very stable. So this is a really important, Bulgaria is so important for the United States and NATO in sort of keeping that eastern flank uh, facing west because uh, traditionally Bulgaria has a lot of common links to Russia, uh, historically, mm -hmm. yep, culturally, yep. and so forth. Yep. So this is what's going on. And so it's really a NATO um, a backwater base. That, that's what Bul Bulgaria is. The US embassy is going crazy. They're round the clock in crisis mode right now. They don't know what to do. This is a total disaster mm -hmm. for the US uh, and NATO. So here is the 42-year-old uh, ousted prime minister who was just at Davos, who's just at Davos two, a few weeks ago, boasting about their anti-Russian energy policy. And mind you, this is one of the main reasons, the bleeding of money and sending to Ukraine, weapons, uh, not getting the energy requirements that the country needs at, the, at a low price, fragile economy. This is one of the reasons why he was ousted. Listen to this clip. Here he is bragging at Davos, very telling. 
so what happened to us? We, be, we were the most dependent, gas-dependent country in Europe, uh, to Russia. We were over 95% dependency. And they asked us to pay in rubles. And we said no. And everybody was very surprised because we were supposed to say yes the fastest. Because when you're 95% dependent, you should be the fastest to say yes. But we said no. And not on, so we became from 95% dependent to 0% dependent over one week. The question is, how can you pull this off? Uh, and this is the, the starting of the lessons, and I think we're learning it through COVID, and now we're learning it through energy. Uh, we have to act together. So a total Build Back Better acolyte, mm -hmm. total Davos man saying, we learned the lessons from COVID, tighten up the supply mm -hmm. chains. Now we're learning from Russia and Ukraine. So you can see the script. It's very similar to the same script you're seeing uh, from other le uh, similar leaders adopting yeah. similar policies. So that, uh, that's the whole Build Back Better uh, mantra right there. So this is leading us into the economy. So Putin's price hike, that's the party line in America. Here is the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell was asked point blank in a recent uh, congressional hearing about the issue of inflation. He's not saying it's a Putin price hike. Here's what he says. Given how inflation has escalated over the past 18 months, would you say that the war in Ukraine is the primary driver of inflation in America? No, inflation was high before, certainly before the uh, war in Ukraine broke out. Well, he's gone off script there. Yeah, huge. So that goes against the Biden administrations and, and all of the press secretary. Everybody's got that talking point. Yeah. Pr Putin's price hike. Yeah. They repeat it all the time. Right. There's Powell. I tend to agree with him there. Of course, I believe him. I believe he's sincere. He, they're probably saying this is a disaster. You know, they're, they're all thinking about saving their skins mm. um, at this point. Why are they thinking that, Mike? Well, the economic disaster has, uh, has been brought to bear uh, in the form this week of a of a bear market rally, everybody got excited. You know, stocks are underpriced. Blue chip stocks are seen as underpriced. People are coming and scooping them up to shore up their portfolios. You got big institutional investors, pension funds. So it's, it was seen as a sort of a, you know buying spree, uh, Ms. Week. And, and people think that's great, little bit of a bounce. But is it really? Is it really a bounce? Is this something to be positive about, or is this actually not a great sign? Well, let's look back at history. One of the great Historians in this regard will be Michael Berry, um, the great sage of Wall Street who called uh, so many different crashes in the past, the dot-com uh, bubble, the 2009 collapse. And he's been shouting about this inflationary cycle uh, for over a year now. Mm -hmm. Nobody was listening much last year. And of course, now they're listening. Everybody's dredging up Michael Berry's old tweets. Um, I think it was the, the Big Short. He was in that yes, film yes. featuring uh, Christian Bale. Uh, I think played Michael Berry. So here he is. This is a, on Zero Hedge. And so he's saying that this is a house of cards. And here's this comment here. As I said, uh, about 2008, it's like watching a plane crash. It hurts. It is not fun. And I'm not smiling. So he, he's, not, he's not getting any joy out of pointing this out. Uh, so he says here. So a crash is imminent. Let's take a look at this. So what he's talking about is the dead cat bounce. Okay. Like these bear market rallies we've seen this past week. Dead cat, dead cat bounces are most epic. Um, 12 of the top 20 NASDAQ one-day rallies happened during a 78% drop from 2000's top nine and so forth. He's just talking about the successive uh, drop. So what he's saying is a little rally within a massive drop, a little peak within a free fall. 
is nothing to get excited about. So let's take a look at uh, his charts here. This is what he's been tweeting out recently. So let's take a look at this. Now, these are three different economic crashes in history, uh, arguably the three most famous. One of them is the current one he's saying is going to be the most epic. Uh, the white is today's economic crash, this cycle that they're looking at here. That's the dot-com bubble bursting there in 2002 in yellow. Uh, in green, that is the Great Depression of 1929-1930. So there's a there's an eerie similarity there, and each of those had massive uh, sort of what they call dead cat bounces uh, 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 among the free falling uh, numbers there. So this is what he says: third times a charm, ten years leading up to financial crisis, um, and he's saying you gotta love human nature, nothing if not consistent. Yeah. So that's what Michael Berry's saying. So uh, when the Bank of England produced their inflation or their, their latest monetary policy committee results uh, a few days ago, Patrick, uh, on more or less the same day, they were busy tweeting out about central bank digital currencies. The Bank of England was? Yes. Well, that's interesting because uh, someone else has been talking at the same time oh. about central bank digital currencies, and that's uh, Mr. Jerome Powell once again. Let's take a look at uh, what he has to say about the coming uh, solution, which he thinks will be CBDCs. Listen to this. Looking forward, rapid changes are taking place in the global monetary system that may affect the international role of the dollar in the future. Most major economies already have or are in the process of developing instant 24-7 payments. Our own FedNow service will be coming online in 2023. And in light of the tremendous growth in crypto assets and stablecoins, we are examining whether a U.S. central bank digital currency would improve upon what is an already safe and efficient domestic payment system. Our, as our white paper on this topic notes, a U.S. CBDC could also potentially help maintain the dollar's international standing. Uh, would it? Or would it replace the dollar as uh, some form of international standing? He's not clear what he means by that. How is, it, how is that going to happen? Mm. And is it like you say, is, is it going to actually replace uh, the dollar long term? So if it's a safe and efficient domestic payment system, well, why change it? Uh, it's safe and efficient. These are two good qualities, right? Why do you need to overhaul it? There's more going on, of course, yes, uh, than they're, they're telling us telling here. Us. Uh, yes. Ian, have you got any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's remarkable, really, isn't it? I mean, we can go back to 2019 in Jackson Hole in Wyoming for the G7 Bankers Summit and hear them talking about the fact that the international monetary and financial system was finished. They, they were just openly discussing that fact and talking about a transition in the, for a, for a start, the global reserve currency. Um, Carney spoke about um, uh, the fact that the transition is always difficult. You know, it's always difficult when we change the global monetary system. So as we head towards doing that and changing it now, two years later, or, or more than that now, three years later, the conditions that they were talking about having to be necessary for that transition to take place, which started with the, what I would call the pseudo pandemic, have just escalated with the sanction. And it's pretty clear, really, when you look at it, that we have to wonder who the sanctions are actually aimed at because Russia are not are coping admirably with the sanctions. Yes, yes, Russia has got a very high 
um, inflation rate, and, and that's a legacy of some of the things that have happened in the past, such as previous sanctions, as well as some of its own monetary policy. Certainly, Russia's monetary policies are very, very tight. But, but nonetheless, um, you know, Russia, the, the, they've already compensated, in effect, for the potential loss of their market, their European market, in terms of their energy. They have also, um, let's be honest, have been continuing with, with supplying that market through all kinds of dodgy means that the EU have approved of, such as the Gazprom kind of sleight of hand, which enabled countries like Bulgaria to carry on buying, you know, it's not admitted that it was Bulgaria, but obviously you can't go from a 95% dependency to zero overnight without getting that gas from somewhere else, which they did from other EU member states. And it seems highly likely using the Gazprom back door. So, you know, the whole thing that we are being told about in terms of sanctions is highly, highly dubious, I would suggest. And just to add to that, uh, the ruble versus the dollar hit a seven year high this week, mm -hmm. 55 rubles to the dollar. If you'd put your money in rubles, back on the first week of March, as we as we joked about, mm -hmm. you would have been more than doubled your money by now. Where else do you get that kind of return um, on currency trading? Uh, nowhere, really. So, But the, in terms of the stock market, as Michael Berry said, it's predictable. Why should you be concerned about the stock market? Do you have a 401k? Do, your, do any of your family pay into a, a stock market-linked retirement fund? Any of your uh, uh, spouse or whatever? then you know, that's not going to be a 401k by the end of this. It's going to be a 201k. It'll be halved. Okay, that's your retirement. It's gone. It's evaporated. Um, so you, know, you should take an interest in the policy decisions your government's making, mm -hmm. that your central bank is making, because at the end of the day, the decisions that they make, the policies they choose, like sanctions or green energy or uh, quantitative easing or COVID relief, that is basically, you think, you think you're getting a, a little bit of help from the government during the pandemic, you're going to pay for that tenfold, twentyfold, maybe more uh, over a very short space of time. You might pay five grand in inflation uh, by the end of this year. So it's going to dwarf anything that you got in terms of Rishi Sunak, eat out to help out free, free vouchers. 400 quid here or there. 400 quid yeah. for your gas bill. It's an absolute joke. They're absolutely pulling the wool over the eyes of the public, and it should be now clear for everybody to see what the game really looks like. Um, so just very, very briefly, Patrick, uh, you said earlier, Germany, uh, the dumbest government in the world. Well, I could see how that's the case from the point of view of the average German or the average European. But from Klaus's, uh, Klaus Schwab's position, they seem to be doing a pretty good job. Oh, yeah, they're, they're absolutely, they're well-behaved and they're right on schedule yeah. uh, for in terms of the Schwabian uh, project, absolutely. Yeah, brilliant. They're well-behaved doing what they're told. Okay, uh, let's uh, move on then. If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org and, uh, well, you'd be very welcome to join us there. That would help us out enormously or you could pick something up at the uh, UK Column shop. Uh, but in any case, do... Um, uh, share any material that you find on the various platforms. Now, last Friday, Patrick, we mentioned uh, Julian Assange and the fact that uh, uh, his, the extradition uh, to the United States had been approved by Pretty Patel. Um, and well, what's the latest? The latest is uh, you know working on a last-minute appeal. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't look great. 
what's interesting though is there's a new incoming prime minister uh, in Australia, Anthony Albanese. Okay, so he's come in. He's supposed to be more left of center. So one would think he might show a little bit of a fealty to this issue. Uh, but actually, no. Yeah, here's what Anthony Albanese is saying. Prime Minister Albanese says he will not uh, be pressured into publicly intervening in the Julian Assange extradition case, despite international law experts arguing that direct involvement by Australia could carry significant diplomatic sway. Now, why is this an important point? Because this is absolutely 100% a political case. Mm. This, there's no doubt about it. It's nothing to do uh, with anything legitimately judicial uh, at this point. It's clearly political. So the only way to solve this would really be by political intervention, by throwing their weight around. It could be successful. John Pilger is not happy about this. Australia's new uh, Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, will fly to Europe to attend a meeting of NATO and the warmongering uh, organization uh, with which Australia has no formal connection. I will show support for Ukraine, says the man who has shown no support, zero, for his own citizen, Julian Assange, who, might, uh, who I might add is a national hero uh, to a lot of Australians uh, because of his uh, career in journalism. Yes, uh, just putting that tweet back on there for a second, Stephanie, uh, uh, it's is interesting that he says, with which Australia has no formal connection. I'm going to add the word yet on the end of that, because, uh, of course, NATO 2030, uh, their new policy is all about reorientating towards the, uh, the South China Sea and so on. I don't think it's going to be too long before we start hearing noise of Australia wanting to join NATO. I'd say de facto they're already in NATO. Look at Afghanistan, their deployment there. That was under a NATO banner, based yes. on if officially or not. So Julian Assange's mother, Christine, put out this audio address, a very short address, and she makes this exact point, and she's making an appeal to to people to to make this issue a priority for for politicians like the Prime Minister of Australia. Let's uh, go ahead and listen to this. Today, on the back of the UK government's decision to extradite Julian to the United States, I respectfully make my plea directly to the parties involved, including US President Joe Biden, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, and the lead solicitor of Julian's UK legal team, Gareth Pearce. After 11 and a half years in pre-trial detention and with legal proceedings dragging on with no end in sight, it has become clear to all following that this case is political and requires a diplomatic solution. When people become very invested in winning at all costs, the collateral damage is truth, justice and humanity. I implore all sides to take a step back from the heat of the fight for a moment and to reflect. I ask all sides to consider a diplomatic solution. Negotiating an end to conflict is a normal part of civilised existence within a marriage, the boardroom, long-running legal cases and disputes between nation-states. In the spirit of bringing this to an end, both sides will need to give a little. Julian has been detained long enough to satisfy any needs for revenge from those pursuing prosecution. He has suffered enough to satisfy those wishing to make him a symbol for press freedom. I beseech those who say they really care about Julian to put his needs as a suffering human being first. And I have faith 
that with goodwill on both sides, a resolution can be reached. Thank you for hearing my plea. So that's a real desperate yes. kind of end-of-the-line message there uh, from Christine Assange. So um, what's going to happen? I, a lot of people aren't holding up much hope uh, in any kind of legal appeal mm. at this point. Uh, so it's likely he will be shipped off to face uh, the uh, uh, district court in Virginia, the National Security Court. But how long is that going to drag on in America? Three, five, six, seven eight, ten years. And uh, while that's dragging on, he'll be in a federal prison, high security federal prison, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, he probably will be yeah, in some kind of federal detention. Yes. So, you know, how long is, you know, on remand, uh, pretrial detention now, what, 11, could end up being 20 years yep. by the end of it. Absolutely a travesty and shameful for any politicians uh, on, on both sides of the Atlantic involved uh, in making this situation happen. It really is. Yes. Okay, now on Wednesday, uh, we were talking about the latest attack on Vanessa Bailey. So I'm going to say welcome, uh, Vanessa, back to the program. But just uh, to remind everybody uh, what, was, uh, what we were talking about on uh, Wednesday, here's this Guardian article here, uh, Network of uh, Syria Conspiracy Theorists Identified as the Headline uh, uh, Campaign uh, uh, dis Disseminating Disinformation and Thousands of Tweets, Sent Thousands of Tweets, Often Targeting the White Helmets. Uh, that was their headline. And unfortunately, Vanessa, we didn't get the opportunity to speak to you about it because uh, of the poor connection uh, with uh, in Serbia where you were. Uh, so welcome to the program. And uh, well, I hear fans going in the background. Yeah, you don't hear anything because <laughs> there's no electricity. You might hear a, a breeze, but that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, but it oh, is my computer overheating. <laughs> well, that's that what that's be. probably what it is. But anyway, yeah, that might uh, be what it is. Uh, this art, this uh, observer article by Mark Townsend. Then uh, this this is uh, extremely balanced reporting, undoubtedly. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, uh, you you mentioned uh, in the program on Wednesday who is behind all of this, and of course. Uh, the number one that people might recognize is the Syria campaign, um, backed by or founded by Ayman Asfari, who funded the Conservative Party under Theresa May, uh, was under investigation by the Serious Fraud Squad, both in the UK and in Italy, I believe. Um, serious skin in the game. He's a Syrian oil baron who has been heavily invested in uh, removing the Syrian government since pre-2011, uh, established the Syria campaign to effectively run PR for the White Helmets, the pseudo-humanitarian organizations tasked with corroborating UK foreign policy in Syria. But now what's interesting, because up until now, the, the White Helmet protection uh, cabal has been very uh, British-centred. Uh, now what we're seeing is this expansion out into uh, US State Department Ministry of Defense assets with this uh, Jasmine El Gamal, who was uh, embedded with American military uh, or US military in Iraq, uh, has been providing reports and investigative uh, analysis for uh, the uh, State Department, Homeland Security, uh, the, the Pentagon, 
for a number of years. She's based in Beirut, which of course we know to be infested with both British, American and Israeli intelligence assets. Uh, and so to some degree now, America is getting involved in this uh, demonization of journalists who are pushing back against their uh, narratives, not only in Syria, of course, uh, this has a knock-on effect on, on those who are reporting also on Ukraine, particularly, for example, my colleague Eva Bartlett, who's on uh, the Ukrainian hit list and who is currently working out of Donbass um, and is seriously at risk. So when we look at, uh, I think it's the ISD, um, the Institute, can you remind me what it stands for, Mike? I've gone blank. Institute, Institute of Strategic Dialogue. That's the one, yeah. Um, that was established only, I think, according to George Ellison, journalist, um, 34 days ago. So this organization was established with funding from Bill and Melinda Gates, George Soros, Open uh, Society, um, various state institutions, foundations, governments, including many of those, of course, who form the regime change cabal uh, that have been waging war against the Syrian government since uh, 2011. Um, to, to effectively, what the petition is saying is that it is lobbying all social media sites to effectively shut down anyone that is seen to be criticizing the White Helmets. So in future, potentially what you're going to see if you hashtag White Helmets and if your tweet is critical of the White Helmets, then you'll be you know, deleted from Twitter from Facebook, from all of the social media platforms that are under their control. But the scary thing here, and of course, um, it's interesting leading into this from the Julian Assange case, because we've all known that, that Julian Assange is the litmus paper for all of us. Uh, and I think what they're now sending out is a double message that this is what we will do to, to those that speak out, that, that challenge power, uh, because mainstream media now is nothing more than an instrument of power. It certainly doesn't speak on behalf of the people, which is its, its primary purpose. And of course, it's no longer fit for purpose. It's an extension of intelligence, security agencies and, and government um, uh, uh, policy. Um, so now what we're seeing is this lobbying of all social media to effectively um, disappear anyone who is challenging important narratives, which of course will be war narratives in the case of the White Helmets, or public health narratives, of course, in the case of um, COVID. And that is mentioned in the actual uh, petition. What's interesting is when you look at the people who sign the petition, uh, it reminds me of many of the Avars kind of manufactured uh, petitions where where they will garner m literally millions of signatures. Um, but when you actually look into it, the majority are anonymous or they don't give their full name. Um, so, you know, one has to question because the public reaction to the Guardian article w was predominantly negative. Uh, so they're not winning as far as public consensus is concerned. My opinion, this is laying the ground for potential court cases, particularly against myself. Um, I know from uh, various sources that Toby Cadman, who has involved in many of the cases against the Syrian government, 
um, was basically hired by the UK Foreign Office to bring the case against the Syrian government. So therefore, he is heavily reliant on organizations like the White Helmets to provide the so-called evidence um, for his cases that he's being paid by the UK Foreign Office to produce. Uh, Karim Khan, elected to the ICC, also has strong connections to uh, the, the manufacturers of uh, the, the report and the um, subsequent uh, Caesar law that, of course, has been one of the most savage sanction systems imposed on Syria under the Trump administration. And uh, James LeMessurier's widow, uh, Emma Winberg or Emma LeMessurier, um, has now gone to Guernica Chambers, which is the legal of Toby Cadman. And we know that they are preparing legal cases, one against particularly the Christian national defense inside Syria, um, bringing a case against them as war criminals, which is hypocrisy in the extreme, against a uh, NGO based in Paris, SOS Pretien, for aiding and abetting the war criminal, uh, the, the national defense um, military that defended uh, the Syrian Christian towns of Mahade and Skelbiya against terrorist attacks for more than seven years, and them being linked with those Christian towns, but also for my calling out the White Helmets as a pseudo-humanitarian organization and stating publicly that if they embed themselves with Al-Qaeda, if they take up arms and if they cause harm to civilian populations, they cease to be covered by the Geneva Convention. They are not recognized as a humanitarian organization by the International Civil Defense Organization of Geneva. Only the real Syria civil defense is recognized uh, in Geneva. Um, and I said that they were a legitimate target during a military campaign if they carry arms and if they are embedded with a terrorist organization, namely Al-Qaeda. Um, and so what we believe is that they will try to bring a case against me on that basis that I am effectively calling um, or I'm producing hate speech against a humanitarian organization. That's their spin on it, of course. Right, right. So, so I just want to put uh, James Curry okay, back on screen because we, we did put this up on, on Wednesday as well, because I think this is a really key point. Patrick, uh, this is what he had to say in the Security Council a couple of days ago. Digital and social media platforms are powerful vectors for propaganda, disinformation and hate speech. We note efforts made by social media companies to address this. Uh, we call on them to strengthen that work in this regard. Uh, secondly, Article 20 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights expressly prohibits, prohibits any propaganda for war and any advocacy of national, racial or religious hatred that constitutes incitement to discrimination, hostility or violence. Hate speech can also be a war crime. So in the context of what Vanessa has just said uh, and the fact that the term hate speech remains uh, as broadly defined as they choose to define it, it's, it's basically undefined. That is an extremely dangerous uh, statement to make. It is. Uh, war crime is also broadly defined. Uh, there's, there's no. Yes. They're not offering any context or definition. So, um, yeah. And also, the, the, these organizations like uh, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, the Atlantic Council's DFR Labs, NewsGuard, uh, they're all, they all do the, basically the same thing. Syria campaign. They're there to do public mobbing. Um, and to build cases, like Vanessa said, 
then they go to the social media companies who are staffed with people who used to work in those organizations like yes. Ben Nemo, uh, and they give them a list of people to get rid of, de-boost, de-platform, sanction. So it's effectively, it's sanctions yes. against individuals. It's just how sanctions are being done uh, through the private route. Um, so if it can't be done officially by the state, they'll use it through uh, corporate proxies. That's what it is. So no, no rights for journalists that have any opinions uh, or report anything that falls outside of that very narrow scope yeah. that the official uh, party line is in, in, in Britain or the US specifically. Yes. So, Vanessa, just just very briefly to finish this off, then, I mean, what, uh, how concerned are you that 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 this type of legal action is in, on the cards? I mean, you, you've said that, that you believe it is, but but is that how concerned are, are you that that's going to come to some kind of actual case? Well, I mean, let's not forget that I was detained for six hours by the anti-terrorism squad uh, when I last came back to the UK on the basis that I was supplying secret information to uh, Russian intelligence. And that was a story that, that was used and, and um, promulgated by the BBC. So I, we know that the BBC is in cahoots with these campaigns to, to criminalize, uh, demonize both academics and journalists that are pushing back against uh, their their narratives, particularly on Syria, but also, of course, now on Ukraine. This, this effectively will have a knock-on effect on every single um, war or public health issue that is going to come up now and in the future, basically. They're, they're setting the scene for, for persecuting journalists. Well, uh, we've got to move on, Patrick, but, but uh, what you've just said mm. about public health is really important because Look, uh, let's put this on screen. The online harms, uh, the online safety bill is is uh, running through Parliament. This was uh, Nadine Dorries a couple uh, yesterday. Fantastic to join pupils at uh, Sheffield, uh, sorry, at Sheffield uh, Lower School for uh, the uh, well. It was a meeting to discuss the online well, to, uh, to discuss uh, internet literacy. It was sponsored by Google and so on. But look, the online safety bill is going through Parliament at the moment. It's cur currently at committee stage. Uh, and let's just get a view very briefly of the attitude of Nadine Dorries uh, when she was uh, questioned about the overreach in this bill from the British government. Uh, this was uh, part of the committee hearing. Have a listen to this. Secretary of State moving on to online safety and the bill. It gives you enormous powers, powers which this committee, cross-party, the Joint Commons Lords Bill Committee and the chair of Ofcom all believe are excessive. Will you listen to them? Will you listen to us and reduce your proposed excessive powers, which we all believe uh, will interfere with Ofcom, the regulator's independence? We listen to everybody, but I listen particularly to Parliament. That's it. Uh, anything, if anything, but, but thorough. Yeah, well, right. uh, just an incredible attitude. Anyway, uh, look, let's just remind ourselves about the duty of care uh, that's in the online safety bill. It says, uh, it, the government says that the largest and most popular social media sites will need to act on content that is lawful, but still harmful, uh, such as abuse uh, that falls below the threshold of criminal offence, encouragement to self-harm, and misinformation and disinformation, right? <laughs> but... Uh, the question is, what is misinformation and disinformation? Well, the same John Nicholson 
who was uh, who's chairman of the the, uh, the committee there, uh, has uh, suggested uh, an, uh, an amendment to the online safety bill. This amendment is likely to be taken up. Uh, and let's just have a look at this. Uh, they want to change the text to include a clause which says priority content designated under subsection two must include content that contains health-related misinformation and disinformation where such content is harmful to adults. And the member's explanatory statement says this amendment would amend clause 54 so that the Secretary of State's designation of priority content that is harmful to adults must include a description of harmful health-related misinformation or disinformation as well as other priority content that might be designated as regu in regulations by the Secretary of State. Um, so uh, that, that, is, uh, that is where we're at with the online safety bill, extremely dangerous. John Nicholson there saying when he was challenging Nadine Dorries, uh, talking about the independence of, of Ofcom. Ofcom is not independent since it's stacked full of BBC, former BBC or still paid for by the BBC people. Uh, so it is far from being independent in this argument. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, this was uh, an amendment he was proposing or his proposing. First of all, just one thing, Mike, this is a total postmodernist construct, online harms. They're trying to equate real world. They're saying that uh, content online is as harmful as real world harms, like real world violence or, you know, restraining somebody so they can't get medical care or something like this, um, they're not the same thing, but they're trying to put virtual virtual speech or virtual harms or perceived harms on the same legal plane as actual physical harms. I mean, it's totally preposterous, but it, it does follow that trend towards these kind of the, the postmodernist trend with, with, with this hate speech and misgendering people. And so all this litany of potential harms that could upset yes. or offend somebody. Yes, well, if, if the online safety bill is a danger to freedom of speech, which it absolutely is, so is the new Bill of Rights. So let's have a look at this from the Index for on Censorship, uh, talking about the Bill of Rights seriously undermining freedom of expression in the UK. And they're saying today the UK government, this was on Wednesday, the UK government presented this new Bill of Rights before Parliament, claiming that it will restore a proper balance between the rights of individuals, personal responsibility and the wider public interest. In reality, the new bill will undermine the universality of human rights and weaken the ability of courts to effectively uh, to effect to pr uh, protection of fundamental human rights, including freedom of expression. Uh, and they go on to say the government claims that replacing the Human Rights Act with the new Bill of Rights will strengthen freedom of expression. Uh, but they say that Article 19, Index on Censorship and English Pen believe that the government is serious about its purported goal to strengthen freedom of expression in the UK. It should instead focus on its attention on reforming a number of problematic laws and legislative proposals that is brought forward, including the National Security Bill, the Online Safety Bill, the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill, the Public Order Bill, and the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act. And I couldn't say I couldn't stress how important that statement is from an index on censorship. They've got it absolutely bang on the money. And just finally on this, want to. Uh, point out this tweet uh, saying doing nothing about the online safety bill is complying with a future that will see the end of freedom of, uh, of freedom and democracy. Your, your stance cannot be neutral, either fight it or be part of the destruction uh, of our freedom. And that is absolutely correct. There are too many people sitting on their hands, not getting involved in this debate. And uh, it's not just but it's not just the online safety bill that needs to be opposed. It is all those bills that index on censorship 
uh, we're highlighting there. That tweet is by the actress, a uh, British actress, Vanessa Bailey. Uh -huh. Not to be confused with Vanessa Bailey. Vanessa Indeed. Bailey just it almost looks the same if you're looking at it very quickly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, right. So let's uh, just uh, well, I've just very briefly mentioned uh, if we put this on screen, Ireland also got its online safety bill coming. Uh, the uh, EU has its Digital Services Act. Uh, this is uh, coming as well. Uh, then we've got, uh, of course, uh, all the disinformation propaganda in the United States. And the latest is that the uh, U.S. House members have been warned about disinformation in the in the midterm elections and so on, all coming from Russia, of course. Uh, and of course, the disinformation board hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, and Michael Chert of the, the latest name to go on the list for that. They wheeled him out of the basement there. That is a proper Nosferatu. A cameo appearance there. 100 percent. Unbelievable. Uh, but sticking with disinformation, uh, let's move to Ian. Uh, and uh, well, the story of Ollie Stevens, Ian. So if we put the BBC article on screen here, uh, this is uh, the lovely Mariana Spring. And her headline was a social media murder. So she is uh, absolutely claiming that social media uh, was responsible for this young lad's death. Yeah, and I and you know what happened to Ollie Stevens is a terrible tragedy, and of course it's you know it was awful for what happened to his family, and there's no doubt about the the, the guilt of the people that were convicted of his murder um, and complicity in organising that murder and then covering it up afterwards. But there are some questions that come from the court case, but nonetheless, um, you know obviously it's the family that we should be concerned about most. <clears throat> Unfortunately, what the BBC have done is they've, you have to say, they have exploited the grief of the family and they've exploited um, the murder of a young man um, to propagandise and to um, sell uh, the online harms, uh, the online safety bill. Um, so if we look at, you know, some of the key things that were important that they said, obviously, so these are some of the things that they've said about the case, about Ollie's case. The phone he was holding would provide the answers to what happened. So everything about the murder, according to the BBC, was found in his phone. The entire attack had been planned on social media. Um, the, and this is a comment from the father. And again, you can understand where the, where the family are coming from, absolutely. But they hunted, tracked him and executed him through social media. The social media was, was, was what killed him. But of course, but then the father realizes he adds, but social media is not guilty of his murder. So the father understands that. The BBC suggests otherwise. Um, and then if we look at what the police said, and this is very, where it starts to get very interesting. Ollie's story stands out because of the huge role social media played in the case. 90% of the evidence at Ollie's murder trial came from his phone. Um, there was enough to convict the two boys. Um, and the mother kind of, uh, Ollie, Ollie's mother also said it's a secret world where you can say and do exactly what you want. So this is, this is what the, the BBC were very much focused upon. So according to the BBC, Ollie's story is about a boy who was murdered due to his exposure to and on social media. The murderers did what they did because they too were influenced by social media. And the whole case could subsequently be proven based upon confessions that were made on social media. So if we, but, but that's not quite what the situation is. If we move on, uh, the, the local paper, the Reading Chronicle, covered the case in great detail. 
and I've just put some links up there um, about the uh, case. Both of the defendants, well, there were three defendants, actually, all three were um, too young to be named. But we've, we've got the younger boy, boy A, and the younger boy, boy B, um, who, were, who were directly responsible for the murder and then the subsequent cover-up of the evidence. So there's just some links there for people that are interested to look at it further. So this is the, what, what actually happened to Ollie, and of course it's a terrible tragedy, but what happened to Ollie was he had a fight with boy B. So he was lured to this, to this spot by a 13-year-old girl he then had a fight with boy B. Um, the altercation got out of escalated and boy A, her different boy, the other boy that was present, stabbed Ollie twice, unfortunately killing him. Boy B did not stab Ollie. So one, one of the, per the, the, the boy that he was fighting with didn't stab him. The other boy that was there stabbed him. So something that came up later that the, the, the defence tried to submit to the trial, but it was excluded from evidence by the judge at the, the original trial, was that boy A, the person that did this, this, the stabbing, um, had a neurological disorder, Asperger's syndrome, and that was withheld from the jury. So the jury didn't know about that at the trial. Uh, that was grounds for appeal, his defence thought. They appealed and they ruled that this fact, that, that the, the appeal judge subsequently ruled that this fact was not relevant to the defence in the trial. Now, I'm not saying that it was or it wasn't. What I'm what I'm saying about this is there's a lot more to what happened to Ollie than just what happened on social media. Certainly, social media. That I think they call it the, the beef. The beef had, had had grown on social media. These two boys accused Ollie of um, grassing them up, basically. But the actual events around the murder. This was a fight that became a murder. So um, that's not to obviously not to excuse what happened in any way whatsoever. But nonetheless, the circumstances around it are more complex than the BBC certainly would have you believe. Um, so what did Mariana Spring do? So in order in order to push this forward, uh, to, to push her narrative forward, she did an investigation where she posed she set up some fake accounts as a 13-year-old boy and, and, and to try and emulate the kind of things that the young people were seeing online. So um, the, she says, our imaginary teenager was recommended posts of people showing off knives, knives for sale and video glorifying violence. Now, TikTok, which was one of the accounts she set up, um, did flag up that content. And they nearly suspended her account because obviously what she was doing was looking at dangerous weapons and things like that. Um, so what she's taken from that, that it suggests, therefore, that it's possible to track the activity of 13-year-old or under-18s, which, of course, it is. This is this is online marketing. This is using tracking pixels and so forth. This is this is standard marketing. This is personalized advertising, which is what which is what social media enables you to do, which is why marketing companies are investing their advertising budgets in social media campaigns because you can personalize the advertising so but what what if we move on to the next one mike what what was the real reason why the bbc got involved in this and that becomes apparent later on in the article when we get that the online safety bill so the online safety bill is currently passing through parliament 
This bill is about keeping children and young people safe. Secretary of State Nadine Dorries tells me. Now, is it is it about keeping people safe, young people safe? That's the excuse that the BBC are peddling. But obviously, when you look at the legislation, it's about far more than that. So the parents fear that the bill is in current form wouldn't have saved Ollie. They want to see more done to verify the age of young young users and limit their exposure to harmful posts, even if the content might be legal. Now, here's the point. They, they're, they're concerned about, con they're, they've been led to understand, I would suggest, that what the content that Ollie was seeing uh, and that the mur more pertinently that the murderers were seeing was legal. And, and this, but it isn't. If, if we look at the law, um, the UK law, the selling, buying and carrying of knives, especially for under 18s, is not legal. Um, to sell a knife to anyone under the age of 18, unless it has been a manual folding blade of less than three inches long. So basically a pen knife is all that someone under the age of 18 can possess, or indeed anyone over the age of 18 can possess. So this idea that that there's no law that exists to currently stop young people buying knives online and getting involved in knife violence and carrying around knives and that all of that is blank should be blamed on social media or indeed can be blamed on social media is evidently false that's not the case at all we do have laws to stop that and obviously you know tragedies like ollie show that what we really need is to be able to enforce and police those laws better than that or rather better than we are at the moment now the bbc took advice from a gentleman called Joe Cagliari. Now he he was was um, cited in the in the Panorama investigation because Spring's article is about a pan, it was also made into a Panorama episode. Um, and he said, "I think social media is a bigger factor in violence and the deaths of young people previously than we realise." So now he's saying that previous murders were were linked to social media activity. With what on based on what on what evidence but what we find is that that uh joe works for an organization called crest and they're called crest advisory now when we look at crest advisory that's a remarkable organization i, I hadn't known about them before but crest say about themselves that police for, police forces and tech companies devolved authorities and public inquiries all play part in building a safer more secure society so hang on a minute so so suddenly we've got private companies pay a part in public security okay i mean we all got responsibility responsibility um we consult with them so we consult with the with the police and the government we consult with them to address that uh, address the demands to understand the policies that define a strategy so, so we are defining this strategy. We are this private company that, or, or NGO in this case, working with private companies, defining strategies of policy. So they are paid for the public sector, paid as a public sector organization, and they're private sector partners. So we provide strategy communication and government support to public inquiries and inquests. So this, this organization is providing strategy to inquest. So what, what inquest is it, is it involved with? So we've got 
um, uh, uh, the ICSA child abuse inquiry, um, the um, COVID-19 inquiry. So this, this organization is providing strategy advice and policy advice and information to things like the ICSA child sexual exploitant uh, inquiry. So who is behind CREST? So CREST, the, the founder and chairman is a guy called Gavin Lockhart Mirrams. Um, and we'll just take a couple of examples. Well, Gavin Lockhart Mirrams, um, if we go on to, to talk about um, a little bit more about who he is, um, Gavin is one of the founders of Themis, which is a think tank, and the manager and director of, of, of Themis. He's responsible for driving Themis partnership between the public and private sector, as well as running the think tank. Gavin was recruited in 2006 to help set up a research unit on crime reduction for the leading think tank in the UK, which they call it Themis, UK, before joining the cabinet office. So, so this is the guy who set up the company that the BBC are using for advice on their programme about the Online Safety Act, which they're passing off as an investigation into a murder. So... The other, another member of Crest, so the chief is the CEO, Harvey Redgrave. Um, uh, he's a decade, decade spent working in government, director of the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit, where he led several major strategic reviews on behalf of a series of UK Prime Ministers affecting policy reform. Harvey is dedicated to putting effective policy into practice for a safer society. So we're seeing this network that is driving this policy agenda. So Harvey, um, he works for the, he's a senior policy advisor for the Tony Blair Institute on Global Change. So, so during his time, he's published several impactful reports on immigration, integration and crime, as well as influencing government policy. Harvey has regularly appeared in print and broadcast media. So this is a, this is a network that we're seeing here with the BBC in the middle of it, Crest, people like, like Tony Blair's Institute. Uh, and so what interests do they represent? So who does Tony Blair, who are Tony Blair's Institute's partners? We've just got all the usual suspects. So, so, so what, what we're seeing with the BBC is they're pushing a political narrative, but the policy itself has not been developed just by the cabinet office or just by the executive. It has been developed as a collaboration, a public-private collaboration between, the, the, in this case, the Cabinet Office, most likely, the Cabinet Office and all these private the NGOs and, and uh, organisations and think tanks like Themis. These are the people that are forming these policies. And, and that is what the whole piece about Ollie Stevens, which I, I think the most disgusting thing about it is that that they've, ex you know, you have to say that they have exploited the murder of a 13-year-old boy to make political points. And, it, you know, it, it is, when we think about it like that, it is quite disgusting. Yes. Last comment on that, uh, what, what, to add to what Ian said there. The, the similar arguments being made for, uh, by gun rights advocates in America following a mass shooting, in, in this case with the knife crime, uh, because of one extreme isolated event, the entire population should then have their rights removed right. to keep everybody safe. It doesn't stack up 
to logic. It doesn't make any sense. It's pure political demagoguery and opportunism. And we've seen the establishment do this so many times. Yes. And they're still at it. It's the oldest game in the book. Um, well, we're more or less out of time, Patrick. Let's uh, change the subject and move on to vaccines in the young. Yes. Well, you know, here's Joe Biden, very animated. This is the most animated you ever see Joe Biden, actually. It's when the children are around that he comes <laughs> alive. Uh, there he is with the mask. So what's going on here? Uh, jab them young. Well, they're really happy. The White House is boasting. Why are they excited, Mike? Uh, well, because the vaccines for infants um, are now being approved in America and they're pushing them uh, quite hard there. Joe's very excited about that. But I want to point people first to here. Speaking of vaccines, daily skeptic, Will Jones, COVID vaccines more likely to put you in the hospital than keep you out. Now, Peter Doshi, the British Medical Journal's editor, uh, he has delivered a scathing, a scathing critique here on the clinical trials of Pfizer uh, and Moderna. There's absolutely no doubt that these are as dodgy as any clinical trial that anybody could ever point to. Uh, the Pfizer vaccines results uh, in a net increase in serious adverse events of 7.8 per 10,000 vaccinated and the Moderna vaccines 8.7 per 10,000 vaccinated. That's just scratching the surface of what's in that article. Go check that out if you're able to share it with your friends on social media. Meanwhile, Biden's gone to the uh, to the, to the Zoom screen here, uh, pushing vaccines for babies and toddlers. And he's saying, this is no time for politics. This is a public health emergency. We must jab the infants with the experimental mRNA uh, gene therapies. Mm -hmm. Must do, must do. So uh, the one state is pushing back against this particularly hard. That's Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis has delivered what I think is one of the most impactful and probably controversial set of statements here. We've edited this down to a very short clip, but I think everybody needs to hear this. And then you need to ask yourself, why aren't your local politicians saying exactly the same thing? Let's look at this. When your administration at the White House, what do you make of the White House saying that the state reversed on child vaccines? So the White House is lying about it. We, <laughs> surprise. Not surprised the White House would lie, definitely not surprised that legacy media would amplify the lie, because that's what they do. The state of Florida, they came out with an article saying the state of Florida has not ordered, its Department of Health has not ordered mRNA jabs for the babies. Yes, we didn't. We recommend against it. We are not going to have any programs where we're trying to jab six-month-old babies with mRNA. That's just the reality. And I think what happened was they thought somehow we would we would like be be embarrassed by that. No, we're following the data. You look at these European countries; uh, they are uh, a lot of them don't even allow Moderna for under age 30, or they recommend against it. So that was always that. We still have not ordered it. We're not going to order it now. What they're saying is because practitioners and hospitals can order it, somehow we've reversed. I I said from the beginning they'll be able to do that. We don't have the authority to prevent it. And quite frankly, if someone wants to make a different decision, I would just caution people: look at the actual data in the clinical trial. It is the weakest possible data that you could possibly uh, see. Very small number of people, uh, what the recommendation is from them doesn't even track the outcomes. 
it was something that, but, but people can ask their pediatricians, they can ask their doctors, what's the evidence of, of, of protection against severe disease? There, there was none in the clinical trial. Uh, but, but that's something that people would do. But for us, Joe Latipo, our Department of Health has looked at it, there is no proven benefit to put a, a baby with an MNRA. So that's why our recommendation is against it. That's different than prohibiting the use in Florida, which we don't have the, the authority to do. And quite frankly, you know, we're, we're confident people can make their own judgments on it. And you know what? The White House is bragging that we're the only country that is trying to do mRNA shots for infants. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. There's nothing wrong with, with, with being, being the Lone Ranger if you're right. But the, the other countries in Europe that are going a different direction, similar to the direction Florida's gone, they have been right on COVID way more than Fauci and his crew have been throughout this whole thing. Remember, these are people in Washington that rejected the idea of natural immunity. Uh, for a year and a half, they said that the vaccine was better than prior infection in every credible study that's been done has said that that's not the case. And, and the fact of the matter is, I think what this whole uh, year and a half has shown us is these regulatory agencies in the federal government have basically become uh, subsidiaries of the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, they are not independent regulators. Uh, they basically are there to rubber stamp uh, what Pfizer wants to do. So Would that go for the MHRA as well? I'm going to leave that question hanging. I think everybody knows the answer to that. Yeah, okay. Right, look, uh, we are just going to uh, finish up here. I just want to mention this story, if we put the OSCE uh, on screen here, uh, because uh, the OSCE Parliamentary Assembly, this is rather, so this is parliamentarians from all the OSCE countries getting together. Uh, it's taking, the, the next meeting's taking place in Birmingham, starting on the 2nd of July, ends on the 6th. Uh, and the reason I want to mention this is because I could find nothing about this in the Western press, not in the British press. So it's being held in Birmingham, as I say. Uh, but uh, here is, uh, uh, I think this is Albania or somewhere. I can't remember where I got this from. London denies Russian delegation visas for OSCE, OSCE Parliamentary Assembly session. That is, uh, to my mind, an absolute disgrace. These are par Russian parliamentarians. They should be at the OSCE meeting. Uh, but the, uh, the UK is denying visas to them. Um, and I just uh, will end the program with this because I haven't seen too much coverage of it, uh, but quite an interesting story. A feel-good feel story. A feel-good story because uh, Boris Johnson's father, Stanley, who, of course, as we know, has written books on population control and population reduction, uh, but he's a massive fan of uh, Marco Polo. Uh, he's done the uh, Silk Road uh, trip before. He finished in Afghanistan. Now he wants to go to Xinjiang. Uh, and I just wonder why he would want to do that. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, he's then uh, causing trouble by uh, encouraging the UK parliament to open its doors to the Chinese ambassador, who's apparently not allowed in at the moment. Uh, but anyway, uh, there you go. Stanley heading to uh, Xinjiang and we'll see uh, what kind of, he's taking a television crew with him. Uh, so we'll see what he comes back with. Maybe he's trying to lobby for them to return to the one-child policy again. Maybe he is. Lots of things he can do in China. Yeah, yeah. Our Stanley. Indeed. But we got to leave it there for today. Thank you very much, Patrick, for joining us. Thank you to Vanessa. Thank you to Ian. Uh, we will be uh, back in a few minutes on the main live stream for a little bit of extra. Uh, and otherwise, uh, hope everybody has a good weekend. And we'll see you on Monday. Bye-bye.